Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Daniela Gutierrez-Flores, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Erin Cowling about her new book titled Chocolate, How a New World Commodity Conquered Spanish Literature, published by Toronto University Press in 2021. Dr. Cowling is an associate professor of Spanish in the Department of Humanities at McEwen University in Edmonton, Canada, and her research focuses on early modern Spanish theater. Dr. Cowling, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest in the book. I'm excited to to talk about it with you today. No, thank you for for being here. Um, I wonder if you could begin um, this interview by just telling us a little about um, a bit about yourself and your training in general. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Canada and I um, went to school in uh, Ontario at a school now called Western University. I did a, a BA there and an MA there. And as part of the MA, I had an opportunity to go to Spain and do some research in the archives, uh, which was my first sort of archival experience. Um, and that really was what uh, hooked me on doing this kind of work in the future and it became integral to the chocolate book itself. Um, and from there, I went to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, uh, where I worked on my doctorate under Dr. William Eggington. And I worked primarily on theater, but one of the pieces that I found while I was working on that dissertation uh, played into the chocolate book and how it came about today. Yeah, could, could you tell us more um about how this specific project um, came to be? What interests you about chocolate in this time period? Well, in general, I think uh, there's lots of us who are interested in chocolate and chocolate is something that, you know, I've always loved. Um, But specifically in this time period, as I said, I was working on my dissertation, which was primarily on theater and how uh, the theatrical productions of that time period looked at the Americas, this new world that had been recently Um, encountered. 
and and how the peoples of that world were were being portrayed on the Spanish stage. And I came across this play, Santa Rosa del Peru, uh, which is a play about the beatification of the actual first American saint, uh, Santa Rosa, who is from Lima, Peru. And uh, I thought, oh, this is a really interesting play because it used chocolate in ways that I had never really thought about. It used chocolate sort of in both a medicinal and a religious way. And I really wanted to delve into that, but it wasn't a piece that fit very well with the rest of the work that I was doing for that dissertation. And so I sort of put it on the shelf and put it aside for a while. And then a few years later, I saw a call for papers for the MLA, the Modern Languages Association, that talked about food in literature. And I thought, you know, I have a few pages written on this, this play. It's a really interesting play. I've always wanted to do more with it. And so I sent off an abstract um, and it was accepted. And then when the program for that, um, that conference came out, I was actually approached by a publisher who was interested in this idea of chocolate in the literature at that time period and wanted to know if I knew of more sources and if I was going to do more work on that. And that's when I really started to delve into how much mention of chocolate there is in the literature of the period. Right. Um, Yeah. So I think your book really adds to a very uh, big existing scholarship on, on the study of chocolate in this time period. And um, as I am a literary scholar as well, it's very exciting to see that specifically from a literary standpoint, right? There's, there's been a lot of historical studies and anthropological, of course. And so I want to ask you um, what you think that literary studies as a discipline has to add to our understanding of chocolate in early modernity. So what do these sources that you worked with, like this fascinating play by, um, it, it was by Agustin Moreto, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, like these sources reveal that other sources might not. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting, um, this idea of what can literary sources tell us, right? We have to be careful always to not conflate the literary with the historical, but certainly literature reflects in some ways its time period. Uh, And so I found the literary sources on chocolate to be really interesting because they gave me more of a an idea of how people were incorporating this new thing into their lives, right? We have lots of archival material that tells us the debates around chocolate, whether, you know, religious figures were interested in chocolate or thought that chocolate was a thing that we should be doing um, if we if we consider ourselves, you know, quote unquote, good Christians or whatever the idea was at the time or the medical debates that talk about whether or not chocolate as a substance is good for somebody from a European background. Um, but the literature itself just kind of shows how quickly, first of all, the chocolate becomes integrated into the day-to-day of, of the average person's life and how they were looking at it, how they were using it as a way to sort of welcome people into their homes, for example, or as a gift that was seen as as not precious, but quite valuable because it wasn't always available because it wasn't being manufactured in Europe. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciated that your first chapter um, deals with pre-Hispanic and pre-Columbian um, meanings of chocolate and its appearance in, in um, in the literature um, of, of the indigenous people. 
and I think what I appreciate is that, um, of course, your your book deals with with early modern Spanish literature, but you kind of um, had to address this um, specific period in order to understand what came after, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, what do these um, very early sources revealed that were helpful in thinking of of chocolate in the in the next um, centuries? So there's a lot of uh, missing sources from that time period, obviously, from the indigenous peoples that were lost, um, unfortunately. But we do have a few things. We have some codices uh, that depict um, pictorially, excuse me, uh, rituals. For example, we see um, as a wedding gift two gods giving each other chocolate in this sort of ritualistic way. Um, We have the Popol Vuh which does mention chocolate in one point. In fact, it mentions it as sort of a cautionary thing. You know, you don't want to overindulge in chocolate, which is something we still talk about today. So there's, it's interesting that we see that <laughs> in those sources, uh, even in the pre-Columbian sources. And so, yeah, there are, there are a few things and we can kind of piece together some things, but chocolate we know was used for millennia before um, the sort of meeting of European uh, soldiers and indigenous peoples. And so it's, it's, it's scarce, but we do have these sort of ritualistic and these ideas about this is a special thing. This is for special occasions. Right. Yeah. And so your second chapter moves on to those, um, early um, adoptions of chocolate and um, this chapter's titled what is it good for right that's a a question that would have been in the in the mind of of Spaniards and Europeans when they encountered this this really like almost like strange looking um, food right you you talk about how uh, how it surprised Europeans right almost materially and visually um, Speaking right, and so in this chapter you discuss um, so many of these uses that um, that chocolate started to have as a as a medicine, and um, you already touched upon some of um, the the more like religious or spiritual dimensions of it. But could you talk about um, these uses um, that you discuss in this chapter? Yeah, so there's a few, like I said, and and you just alluded to, there's this sort of ritualistic or religious um, bent to it. There's also, from the point of view of the soldiers who go over to what becomes New Spain and then later Mexico, see, they think, oh, it might be sort of an aphrodisiac because they see um, Montezuma's servants bring him this chocolate and they've been told it's, you know, Montezuma's time to be alone with, with his wives or women. Um, and so they they assume that this is sort of connected in some way. Uh, they also eventually realize that it is quite valuable, um, even in the bean form. Uh, you see the bean actually being used as a monetary device in mm-hmm. indigenous cultures. So they use it like to purchase things if they go to a market, for example. Um, and the Spaniards eventually capitalize on this by creating in the cathedral in Mexico a Señor del Cacao, or Jesus, like a Jesus figure that they can leave cacao beans for as their sort of offering 
to the church. Um, and so we've got those two uses. And then, you know, some of these things kind of translate over when it gets to Spain. We see it being quite valued, right? It's not necessarily being used as a currency, but it is valuable and it is used to sort of gain favor with certain people, right? And so that use kind of goes over. And then the ritualistic religious side doesn't go over directly, but there is some concerns by the religious authorities in Spain that people are overindulging in chocolate. And so we get back to that again, how much should we be drinking? When should we be drinking it? Um, part of the, whether it's good for us, you know, on the medicinal side as well. So there is also this idea that it could be medicinal uh, and that shows up in that Santa Rosa del Peru play as well. Um, and so there's all these questions around it once it gets to Spain about what is it good for? How is it going to be incorporated and used in our daily lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was very interested in um, these sources, the, the natural histories, right, by uh, authors like um, Gonzalo Fernández de Oviedo and, and José Acosta, who really are like encyclopedias of everything that they encounter that was new to to Europeans, right? Like all the plants, all the animals. Mm -hmm. And so how was chocolate uh, talked about in these um in these kinds of sources like like Oviedo's and, and Acosta's? Um, so in Oviedo, I'm trying to think if he actually specifically talks about chocolate. It's not, it's escaping me now. Um, Sometimes they talk about the tree, right? More they talk in about general. the tree for sure. There is some talk about how it has to be grown because it actually, mm -hmm. the cacao tree requires very specific conditions um, that really can't be replicated in a lot of places. Um, I was actually talking to a group of high schoolers uh, last week about sort of how I got to study Spanish the way that I did and why I was so interested in it. And I asked them, where do you, you know, where did chocolate come from? And they, they all said Africa, because that's where it's being cultivated now. And so there are some parts in Africa where it's got similar conditions, but really it's a very narrow band close to the mm -hmm. equator where chocolate can be grown. And so they do talk about that, but that it also needs shade. And so it's got this whole ecosystem around it that they do um, consider very important to relay mm -hmm. so that it can continue to be cultivated in the future. And I think one of the most fascinating things um, about chocolate in, say, in comparison to other um, Native American foods is just how controversial and contradictory it was perceived. Like people adopted it happily, and it was, as you said, like very early on um, consumed first by by um, by the, by the nobility, um, but it very quickly spreads to to other classes um, as well. And I think one of the most interesting uh, facets of this these contradictions is the religious side, which you already mentioned. Um, and I think um, in my classes, it's something that, that surprises students a lot. Like, why would the church be so interested <laughs> in, why do they care, right, um, that, that chocolate um, was being consumed 
in 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 any um, way or form. So could you describe to our listeners why childhood was so controversial um, from a religious standpoint? Like, why did it percubi the Catholic Church so much to to the extent that there were treatises on discussing mm-hmm. the um, the food itself? Yeah, so I think there's two very distinct points that the church becomes preoccupied with. Um, the first and maybe the more important one is is the idea of fasting, right? Because the, in the Catholic Church at this point, there were still a number of fasting days that they were observing that you were supposed to sort of stay home and be quiet and contemplate your relationship with God and, you know, pray, but really you shouldn't be doing a lot. You shouldn't be working. You shouldn't be, you know, running around. And the concern there was that chocolate would maybe give people too much energy, right? Because they Mm -hmm. had actually heard stories of indigenous peoples who could use chocolate as sort of an energy drink, like we would today, right? With Red Bull or or one of these things. (laughs) And so they would drink a, a, a big mug of chocolate in the morning kind of thing. And they would be able to work out in the fields all day. And so when, when people in Spain heard this, the church assumed, okay, it's the chocolate itself. Now, we know that the indigenous peoples added certain ingredients to chocolate that later get taken out and, and replaced with other things in Spain that could have also added to that effect. Um, but also the mm-hmm. production of chocolate in Spain as well was adding a lot of things that the church was concerned about, right? People might grind up eggs or put an egg in and bat- you know, um, blend an egg into it kind of thing. And so it's that also that sort of mixture with other things. There's this argument that's made that like, you know, if you were to soak a cake in water and, you know, get it to go all mushy, it would still be cake. You'd still be eating cake, even if you were drinking it. Right. (laughs) And so that argument becomes sort of this this idea that you're not fasting. Sorry? (laughs) Like a protein smoothie, like it's a meal in itself, like... Exactly. Exactly. So this was their concern that that even though it's something you're drinking, really, it could be something you're also eating. Right. And so you were allowed things like wine and water, of course, in the fast, because those were not thought to give you any any energy, um, but maintain you like sort of alive during this fasting. But but they really came down on this chocolate as being too much of a nutritious thing. Right. The other part that comes up is in the churches themselves. Um, they they become concerned that people are more uh, excited about, I guess, uh, the chocolate that they're drinking in church, and they actually send out their servants, especially the the women, send their servants out to bring them more chocolate during mass, and it becomes quite disruptive. And so, at one point, the Archbishop of of Toledo which is a city south of Spain, for those who are not familiar with Spanish geography, um, but that was quite important at that point. Uh, They send out this proclamation that says, look, we're going to ban chocolate drinking from the church. You cannot bring chocolate into the physical church. Uh, So that's sort of the secondary complaint that the church ends up having. So yeah, it's it's a really fascinating idea of how like what what is a drink, what is food, and and all these other things that come into it. So so it almost functioned as as popcorn in the movies, like people were more. 
more focused on the drink than than the words of the priest, so to speak. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned, I wonder if you could tell listeners, like, walk us through sort of like the, the taste evolution or the culinary evolution of chocolate, how it was consumed um, at the beginning, and then what sort of things were added or subtracted um, over over the, the centuries. So, like, I, I think I alluded to earlier, you know, when the Spaniards were first presented this in the new world, especially mostly in what's now Mexico city. Um, they kind of were not very keen on it because it was much more, um, it wasn't sweet at all. Right. It was much more of a savory drink. Uh, the indigenous people would add like ground up corn to it. Um, chilies, right. To give it sort of a spicy flavor, not a whole lot of sweeteners. Uh, and it's not until it comes back to Spain and it comes back in sort of bar forms, right? It's it's ground up and it's sort of made into these bars so that they can easily transport it. Um, and then you can sort of melt it down and add whatever you want to it, right? And and so, like I said, it was a very thick drink. It ha maybe had eggs added to it at times. Um, it usually had honey added to it as a sweetener. Uh, sometimes some of the spices, right? But mostly things like vanilla. Um, things that we, we would associate now with sweet foods, with dessert foods, right? Like uh, and so that's sort of the, the evolution. There are different recipes that you can find from that period. Some very basic, right? Just mix it with some hot water uh, and, you know, a few things to add some flavor to it. And that's supposedly a more healthy, quote unquote, version of the, mm -hmm. of the drink. Whereas like the ones that added quite a bit of things like flour or eggs or whatever, those were considered less healthy because they are going to have more calories, right? As right. we know now, uh, yeah. when you add those kinds of things to them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I was very interested that um, in this recipe you you discussed there are um, even if it's like a, a, a medical uh, source, like um, or or even like a historical one, there seems to be like recipes of the drink like they made its way to uh, these chapters when they're discussing more like mm -hmm. the, the religious or, or the the medicinal um, properties of the chocolate and that we could almost um, try and reproduce in in our own kitchens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I was very excited to see just how incredible, incredibly rich the archive you'll work with is. Um, so you have theater and poetry and um, medical literature, religious literature, and it, it seems to be everywhere in in the period, like in all kinds of, of discourses and across um, social classes at different points. So I, I'm interested in, in knowing about this, this centrality, like why it, it um, 
what's so widespread in comparison to other foods and and also to know if chocolate appears in together with other foods of the americans like maize or i think you mentioned also um substances like like tobacco right that um that it was associated with yeah absolutely so I mean, we're still fascinated with chocolate, right? And I think there's just something about it that makes us think about it or, or write about it. And it seems to become quite quickly sort of a, a, a very um, normalized thing, I guess I can say, uh, because it shows up in the literature frequently enough that there were multiple sources. But in some cases, it's just a quick mention of it, right? Um, there's only one play. It's a very and it's a short play. It's what we call in Spanish an entremes, which is these sort of plays that were done during intermissions um, of a longer play. And it's the the dance of the chocolate maker, el baile del, del chocolatero. And he, you know, talks about how he makes chocolate, and you know, it's sort of just a funny little. These plays kind of are sort of absurd. Uh, they don't really have plots, right? But it's the only one I found where it was in the title. Um, there is a discourse, which is sort of like a, what we could now call a dialogue, written early, on, sort of early-ish on in, the, in 1618, I believe, that's a, between a indigenous person, a doctor, and it's as a, a bourgeois, um, sort of like a noble kind of thing, where the doctor especially is trying to get the indigenous person to talk about chocolate and how bad it is for us. Um, so those two are the kind of two that are really centered on chocolate. Um, but they also, the, that one, the dialogue also mentions tobacco and how these things are both sort of very not great for us um, and how we should be cautious about how often we're using them. Uh, and that comes up over and over again. There's a Quevedo discourse as well that he talks about how chocolate and tobacco are sort of the devils that have come from the new world mm -hmm. to take their revenge on Spain and Europeans for having conquered and, and done all these terrible things mm -hmm. to the people of, of this uh, newly found quote unquote uh, place. And so it's still sort of seen as this evil that's going to hurt us in that dialogue as well. Um, and then later on, we find uh, them being separated, right? Chocolate becomes sort of a, an acceptable thing, whereas tobacco is still seen as, as kind of a dirty habit. Mm -hmm. There are some sources that also talk about maize and how that was incorporated into chocolate in the indigenous um, ways of making chocolate. But it's not really talked about in the literature itself as, as a companion to chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um, now that you've mentioned this um, really interesting uh, interlude, the baile del, del chocolatero, um, so it made me think on two things. Um, first, on like really the the challenges the, in in terms of methodology of tracing these mentions across a huge archive, right? Like, oh, there's chocolate here and there's chocolate there, and this is mm -hmm. a lot of what you do in your book because it's like a big puzzle of chocolate pieces right that you put together in order to to make like a, a wider argument so i want to know mm -hmm. um about the, that particular challenge and also um 
you being uh, a scholar of theater, um, you mentioned that um, that has been your, your primary research, uh, or it was um, when you did your dissertation. Um, how chocolate functions in 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 the place, right? Because it's it's um, it appears a lot um, for humoristical purposes, um, right? So mm -hmm. you could just like comment on that as well. Yeah, it is. Um, well, I'll start with the the sort of piecing everything together. Um, I feel very fortunate that I was doing this work in the age of the internet and a lot of things have now been digitized. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And yeah, even the archives in Spain now have sort of a centralized um, catalog that you can go to and, and things are actually quite well annotated. Like even if the, the piece itself is not digitized, you know, if, if chocolate's mentioned, it shows up in their keyword search and things like that. So I, I feel like I really lucked out even from when I first went to the archives, you know, um, almost 20 years, not 20 years ago, but 15 years ago, um, you know, it, it really has improved significantly. And so that really was helpful. Sometimes though, like the Santa Rosa one, it just happened to be something I came across mm -hmm. and, and thought was interesting. Um, how it functions in the, theater itself uh so there are you know there's lots of ways the Santa Rosa one really is sort of the the one that has the most mention and the most use of chocolate um as a full-length piece of theater right a three-act play uh, mm -hmm. and it's used like I said it's used medicinally but also for religious reasons right so she's fasting and, and the whole legend about Santa Rosa is that she you know fasted and prayed to God and he helped to sort of keep an uprising of indigenous people down and, and Lima stayed a Spanish city. Um, but she's fasting in this play. Just, she, you know, she just says to, to show her devotion to, to Jesus. And she's, you know, hasn't eaten for days and she's very hungry, obviously. Um, but she just says her stomach is hurting her, that she's got stomach pains and her servant, whose name is really funny. It's Bodigo, which is the, um, Oh gosh, the communion, right? Bread. Uh, so he's got that double play on his name. Uh, he says, well, you can just take a little bit of chocolate and it's not, it doesn't break the fast and it'll, it'll also work as sort of a medicine to help with these stomach pains. And he convinces her to drink a little bit of chocolate. Right. And so he sort of steps into both this medicinal is this good for us debate and this religious, like, you know, this is, um, this is okay for you to do even when you're fasting, uh, so, uh, right at the same time. So that one's really interesting. Uh, there's other times where it's used uh, for its humorous um, connotations that are sounds because it sounds a lot like, uh, like cacao, the, the bean itself sounds a lot like the words that we use in Spanish, cacao, when we're talking to children about, you know, do you need to go to the bathroom? Uh, and so that <laughs> comes up in this sort of scatological way frequently in that characters are introduced to chocolate and they're, they are given the chocolate and they're saying, no, it's, it's this new thing and it's called cacao. And they think, oh, you're giving me like a poop drink, right? <laughs> and so that's sort of the joke that comes up over and over again. 
tailors all the time <laughs> the eschatological humor. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it would make sense that in a in a genre like like the Intermez, these um, shorter um, theatrical interludes that it shows up there, right? Because right? they're um, meant to like as a little break for the audience when like longer, more complicated. Um, playground stage right right and and they would rely on sort of these base humor uh jokes to get people laughing again if it's been a really sad scene or or you know things like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. so in your last chapter um you touch upon like the corrupting or like the darker side of chocolate i think is the the title of the chapter um but the corrupting nature or potential of chocolate that it wasn't always seen as as um as an innocent right food and how it was commonly associated to to sin to sex to dark magic and and even to witchcraft right and um if you could talk about these specific associations and also very interesting um how these are very gendered as well as you point out yeah, absolutely. So uh, this starts right from one of the first pieces, which I which I've already mentioned, which is this discourse between the doctor, the indigenous person, and and the bourgeois. And one of the things that the indigenous person supposedly tells, you know, the doctor, is that um, well, you're probably going to have to get chocolate from the indigenous women, and as you know, they're all, you know they don't use the word witch, but like there's this implication that there will be some kind of dark magic incorporated into the chocolate. So that kind of comes up right from the very beginning, even though in other pieces, it's seen as this wonderful thing. People, you know, love it. They, they maybe drink too much of it. Um, It's still, you see it throughout right up into the 18th century that there's this maybe magical, maybe, you know, it could be used as a potion um, one of the most famous historical cases of this is uh, the last Habsburg king, who, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was not the brightest, right? We know now that perhaps there were some reasons uh, in his family tree that he was having some issues both medically and, and intellectually. But the story that went around was that it was his mother, Mariana de Austria, who poisoned him using his favorite drink, of course, chocolate, by mixing in, and this was supposedly used frequently, of the brains of a dead person to make him not very bright. Um, And so chocolate was seen as this potential vehicle for ingredients that might otherwise be really disgusting because it had its own strong taste that would mask any of these potential right. poisonous um and also ingredients. right right exactly right and there's also the stories that perhaps menstrual blood was being put in it and because chocolate was often colored red especially in, in indigenous circles that sort of connotation that connection was also made and that again it would be masked by the dark color of chocolate and by um, the the taste of it that you just wouldn't notice these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, I was also very, um, very pleasantly surprised um, on the last 
text of Judas Kostner epilogue, which again is a, a, a sort of temporal leap. Um, and you discuss a contemporary play uh, titled Mestiza by Julieta Soria. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us more about this piece because you saw it, right? And um, why you decided to close with a discussion of this play and right hint at the the contemporary like echoes the echoes that chocolate has right in our contemporary world and in in literary um sources like like this play yeah i you know it was such a beautiful play and it was really well done um I really, I got to see it in person in Alcalá de Henares when it was, in fact, its uh, first opening night. And I was fascinated by it because I do study theater of that period. And this was a play about Francisca Pizarro, who is the first uh, mestiza woman, the first woman born, supposedly. Um, There may have been others, but she was the first sort of well-known one between an Incan princess and a Spanish conquistador. Um, and she later moves across the Atlantic and lives out her life in Spain. And this story picks up in the last years of her life, um, her telling her story to Tirso de Molina, who is a playwright of the period. It's a little bit analogous, right? He probably would have only been 15 or 16 in her last years of life. But, you know, for the sake of storytelling, we'll, we'll allow it, right? Um, because he does go on later in life to write a trilogy on the Pizarro family. The Pizarros were well-known conquistadors, especially of sort of the Peru, Peru, what is now Peru, Chile. Um, and so the play itself uh, brings up chocolate because Tirso gives her chocolate beans as a gift for talking to him about her life. And she's sort of enthralled by these and it brings up memories of her childhood. And she starts to actually speak in Quechua, the, the language of the indigenous people. And um, I thought it was an a lovely, brilliantly done play. And then I went to uh, a conversation that was being held a couple days later uh, that included academics and um, journalists from Spain. And people were very mixed on how they felt about this play. It was not as well received as I expected it to be. Um, Mm. But for me, the great thing about a play like this and the plays from that period that are being adapted today by um, actors in Spain and and around the world, in Mexico as well, uh, and and other places, is that it shows that these topics are still relevant today, right? That something as simple as a chocolate bean and the memories of somebody who was born in another place and maybe not treated as well as they should have been can bring up emotions for us 500 years later. Mm-hmm. And would you mind telling us uh, why it wasn't uh, well received by, like, what nerve did it touch that it was uh, a bit controversial among the audience? I think it was controversial for some people because it did talk about the fact that people who were uh, living in the Americas at the time were not treated perfectly by people in Spain, right? There's this still this idea of the sort of Landa Negra, this black legend that, Mm -hmm. you know, not that those moments were not always comfortable for everybody. 
Um, So it touched on that. It also was very close to the time period when Mexico actually asked um, for a apology from the King of Spain and the King of Spain eventually refused. So it was all kind of very closely tied together time wise with those uh, things. And I think there are some people who would rather we just stop talking about those things. Right. Right. And the play talks about it and it actually, um, some of the dialogue does bring up the debate that was done at the time by Las Casas and Sepulveda uh, about whether or not indigenous people have souls and should be treated as such. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting to see that these things still touch nerves and that they're, they're still being discussed today. Right. And it just goes to show that, um, well, um, talking about chocolate, it's still relevant and, and important, right? Very, yes. um, and up to this day, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Erin, thank you so much for taking up a lot of your time now. Um, I really enjoyed um, reading your book and I encourage other chocolate lovers um, to <laughs> to take a bite of it. Um, it seems like food cars cannot resist food puns. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to know, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? So I'm, I'm focusing more on theater um, again. And, you know, it's always sort of my, my first love and I always end up going back to it. But right now um, I'm really interested in more modern adaptations of plays from the early modern period. Uh, I've been working for a number of years with a group out of Mexico City, Efe Tres Teatro, who do very interesting, very minimalist uh, productions. They tend to work um, with either a, you know, a, a one-man show, a two-man show, or, or sometimes three. Um, that's sort of their max. And, and so that's been a really interesting few years of working with them and how they're building in you know, stories from that period, but that still talk about, again, sort of how we were just talking about Mestiza, these relevant mm-hmm. um, things that are still touching our lives today. Uh, and so I'm actually working very closely with a good colleague and friend of mine, Glenda Nieto Cuevas, who's at Ohio Wesleyan University. And we have been meeting with groups primarily in North America. So we're focusing on Canada, the U.S. and Mexico who are updating and adapting these plays for audiences in those spaces and talking about their own lived experiences as Latinx or Latino people living in diaspora. How do these plays still speak to them and how are they adapting them so that they speak to their lived experiences and the lived experiences of their audiences? That sounds very exciting. And, um, Again, very relevant to think about, especially because, um, well, sometimes early modern literature is not the easiest to approach. So it's very exciting to see that it's been sort of uh, updated and revived by these artists and scholars like yourself. Um, yeah, I want. We're calling yeah. it um, Siglo Latinx, and we actually have a website oh. which is www.siglolatinx.com. It's very bare bones right now, but as we go about uh, collecting information and things, we will we'll start to update it there. So if anybody's interested, they can follow us there. Absolutely, thank you, thank you so much for sharing such an exciting project. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Really enjoyed it, and. Um, Take care. Thank you so much.